0: Brower and the T1 Brass. I'm Carson Sestuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It has, of course, become a habit of late uh, that we will use this space of the uh, of the Fangraphs Audio, Uh, in particular when Dave Cameron is making an appearance. We'll use this space um, to inform listeners. As to uh, how much baseball they can expect to be analyzed and what follows, Uh, frequently it's uh, 100% or near 100%. Last week, Dave Cameron in a cute moment, Uh, Dave Cameron being cute for a moment, uh, said that he analyzed two standard deviations of baseball above the mean. Uh, when I asked Cameron the question this week, this is how he responded.
1: I have analyzed a worldwide amount of baseball this week.
0: Why, uh, why did he respond that way, you might ask? Uh, well, one of the reasons is uh, because a lot of what we talk about in What Falls concerns the World Baseball Classic and is exemplified by the fact that uh, there were, according to Baseball America's Ben Badler, there were 86 people in attendance at the WBC game uh, in Fu- Fukuoka, Fukuoka? Uh, Japan, um, between uh, the game between China and Cuba, which is not a lot. So uh, we talk about that, and we hearken back to a piece that Cameron wrote last week regarding uh, perhaps a, a format that the WC, uh, WBC might entertain. Um, not. Uh, also, we discuss uh, Mike Trout and salaries for very young players, and what uh, changing those salaries, or changing the minimum major league salary, would do to competitive balance in the major leagues—that's just a—that's uh, just a part of it, though. That's just a part of it. What follows on what follows. This is Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Yeah, uh, you wrote about Mike Trout. You you warned I, me. You warned me you were going to write about Mike Trout, and then you did write about Mike Trout. Kind of. Jeff
1: wrote about Mike Trout more than I did. I wrote about uh, the pay scale as it relates to a jumping off point from Mike Trout news.
0: Right. And I, so I'll say a couple of things. I, I have not quite gotten to Sullivan's piece. Um, as we record this, we record uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. I think he. I think it was just published, and it's also not short. Right, stuff like that. Right, yeah, that's true. Well, I don't know if he was just published. I don't know what that would mean, but he is not short. Uh, those are yeah. that's a fact. Uh, with regard to your piece, though, yes, the the thing is, the question is, um, the question is one of fairness, uh, right? Yeah. Because we say um, th- so. This is the news that comes out. Uh, it's a um, uh, Mike Trout's agent says my client was. You know, either the best or second best player in the major leagues last year. Uh, look at this, however, he's being paid only five, what five ten, something like five hundred. Five ten, 10 yeah. 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 Um, this is ridiculous. Um, either the Angels or all of baseball is is uh, to be to blamed. To be blamed. Yeah, I think
1: mostly the Angels. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be blaming MLB. He was uh, unhappy with the
0: team. Right, but in this situation, we look at some kind of precedent. And precedent would seem to suggest that uh, what the Angels have done with Trout um, is not unusual.
1: Correct. It seems like most young players, even the really good ones, uh, don't make significant amounts of money until they agree to either a long-term contract early in their career or they get to arbitration. And, you know, I think in the post that I wrote, I cited uh, Clayton Kershaw, Giancarlo Stanton, and Jason Hayward. All of them were paid under $500,000. Uh, in their second and third years in the big leagues, uh, despite being, you know, some of the best young players in baseball. And I don't think anyone, you know, thinks the Braves or the Dodgers have been especially cheaper, you know, uh, running off their star young players. Um, it's just for whatever reason Trout decided, you know, it was more attention was paid to the fact that Trout was renewed for half a million dollars, when this is a pretty common thing.
0: So, so you say it's a common thing. You, you invoke a couple names, uh, Gene Carlos Stanton, Jason Award, et cetera. Is there something... To, the, to this point, which is that Mike Trout was so good that perhaps this is a situation without precedent?
1: Uh, I, Maybe. I mean, I think, you know, there there is precedent for teams paying a little bit more when they didn't have to. I mean, the, the Cardinals, uh, you know, gave Albert Poole $200,000 rookie salary in 2001, and then, you know, he was an absolute monster, and the next year they gave him $600,000. You know, massive raise. So there are situations where teams have looked at, uh, you know, there's outstanding young players and said, as a reward for what you just did and because we're just dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars in a sport where, you know, revenues are in the billions, um, we're we are going to reward you for your efforts. But, you know, as Jeff noted in the piece that you haven't read yet, mm-hmm. uh, the Angels towed the line with Jared Weaver, and Jared Weaver gave the Angels a massive discount on his long-term contract. Uh, there's not actually a whole lot of evidence that suggests that giving a player hundreds of thousands of dollars extra when you don't have to early in their career actually helps you save money in the long term.
0: Is, okay, so if we're talking about precedence or lack thereof, is maybe the lack of precedent here the fact that Trout's agent uh, Landis, uh, Dan, Dan Landis perhaps? Craig, Craig. Craig Landis, well, you know. Uh, uh, is at it, least is, it
1: wasn't Kennesaw Mountain.
0: Right, that's right. But is it, uh, is it is, if we're looking at precedent or lack of precedent, is, it, uh, is the lack of precedent here the fact that uh, Trout's agent has decided to say anything about this at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the unusual part is that Trials agent has made this a public fight. <laughs> I mean, not necessarily a fight, but I'm going to be, you know, groused about it uh, publicly because you know there's not really anything he could have done about it. There wasn't, you know, I, like I would have been curious to hear what the negotiations actually sounded like, considering that Trials agent had no leverage whatsoever.
0: Right, and that's and that's the point, right? I mean, uh, and I've, um, I think there was a quote I heard. Um, I, I, I forget it was uh, it was via Twitter though. Someone invoked the line. I think it was from Marvin Miller. Um, if you if you're wondering whether or not ownership has changed, uh, look at what they do um, when they have all, uh, all of the leverage. And this is an instance right. of that. I think that the point that you will ultimately make, or you do make in your piece, and uh, upon which we can expand here, is that is that if we want baseball to be competitive, there has to be something along there has to be something that resembles the current system. Otherwise, the 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 poorest teams would not really be able they would have no out whatsoever to field a competitive team.
1: Right. I mean, I think what we've seen in Major League Baseball, I mean, obviously there's large financial disparities between teams. This is not news. We know that the Yankees and Dodgers and, you know, Red Sox and a few other, you know, Phillies, the, these franchises have a lot more money to play with than, you know, the Rays and A's and Twins and, you know, the Pirates. The teams that we know don't spend nearly as much money. If we just decided to create a more equitable pay scale where the younger players got more money and the older players got less money, it would make it harder for these low-revenue teams to compete because it would essentially act as a regressive tax where a larger percent of their payroll would have to go towards uh, players that they've previously been able to pay $450,000, $500,000 to. It would essentially double their, you know, if we went to a $1 million, as I suggested in the post, it would essentially double their costs for a pretty large uh, percentage of their roster, which would then take away money that they could give to Major league free agents, and you know that money would likely drive down the price of free agents overall, making it easier for teams like the Yankees who are you know trying to get under the luxury tax of 189 million. You drive down the price of free agents; they're just going to be able to find a few uh, you know, an extra free agent or two. Uh, it would you know essentially make things cheaper for the team that have a lot of money and make things more expensive for the team that have a little bit of money. I'm not think anyone thinks that's a good idea.
0: No. Uh, now you you invoked the words regressive tax. Could you could you just explain what those are? Uh, what a regressive tax is briefly. Yeah,
1: so, I mean, a regressive tax is essentially one that hits the poor more than the rich. So, you know, you'll hear the terms regressive and progressive in in the economy when it comes towards, um, you know, conservative versus liberal tax policies. A progressive tax is one that gets uh, significantly steeper as income rises. So in in America, we have a progressive tax system in that the uh, federal income tax rate starts at 15% and goes up to 40% to 35%, something like that. I don't remember exactly what the current tax brackets are. Uh, but as you make more money, uh, and, you know, you cross over certain thresholds, the government takes more of your money. That's a progressive tax system. The, uh, Ballyhooed flat tax from the 90s is essentially a regressive tax, uh, or would serve as a regressive tax, even though it's an equal, uh, line across all income levels. Essentially, it would, uh, act as a a larger drag on people who don't have as much money. If we assume that the first 20 or 25,000 or whatever it is of a person's income, Goes towards, you know, necessities like food and clothing and shelter. Uh, you're essentially taxing all of that spending for everybody, but then you're not taxing greater amounts over that, which are luxury items or discretionary spending. Uh, you're going to make the person who only spends 20 grand, uh, have more of their income get taxed than the person who spends $100,000, even though the, the tax rate is the same for all.
0: So if we're going to set, like, replacement-level income, essentially, we would – Right. You would, you would uh, account for all of the things that are essentially necessary to stay alive. Uh, Correct. And it would be above that. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think what you see with the progressive tax is uh, kind of an acceptance of the fact that not why every dollar is equally valuable. And I think, you know, this is something that people generally understand, but not to get too far into politics. But, you know, I think a lot of people argue um, – that, you know, it's it's unfair to have the wealthy pay a larger share of their income in taxes. But at the same time, we understand that, you know, that millionth dollar is not nearly as important to your ability to sustain life as the first dollar. Like, you know, the one that allows you to buy food is a lot more important than the one that allows you to buy a boat. And so, you know, whether it's fair or not, it's probably in everyone's best interest. And America, you know, even one of the most capitalistic societies in the world has agreed that a progressive tax even in everyone's best interests rather than a regressive
0: tax. Well, okay, so we can stay away from, um, I guess, how it manifests itself in American politics, and we can say that, r- regardless of, of people's opinions on that, baseball, uh, is cer- certainly baseball, its most successful, has generally been run like a like a socialist state, uh, in the sense that there's uh, profit sharing everywhere, um, and yep. this is because, this is because the health of the thirtieth best team. Is relevant to the health of the very best team.
1: Correct. I mean, I think you know, in in Major League Baseball, uh, having a weak link uh, who's continually you know losing, you know, you don't really want to have the Washington Generals in your league, uh, a team that constantly loses, has no fan base. It's not good for the sport as a whole. Uh, You know, I think there's a balance to be struck where you know overall parity where. No team is able to sustain success probably isn't good either. But I think overall, sports leagues want a system where teams have a chance to contend or they have a path to success. Uh, and, you know, if you have teams at the bottom who are just constantly losing, it's, it's not good for anyone.
0: So here's a question. In terms of competitive balance, has um, have there has there been any research done so far as you know or any work on this? Um, or I guess feel free to speculate wildly on what the sweet spot might be, because there also seems to be some benefit to having a team, um, you know, like the Yankees, that uh, everyone ex- sort of uh, uniformly hates, except for, of course, their own fans. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I w- there must be some, uh, there must be some benefits to that as well. So I, I, just, I wonder, like, what is the, um, what is the balance, or what is the sweet spot of a competitive balance? Yeah, I
1: mean, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I have a. a piece in the ESPN, the magazine, baseball preview that will be out in a few weeks where Dan Zaborski bunched a bunch of data and we're actually writing about uh, kind of the changes in parity and the changes in competitive balance in Major League Baseball over time. Uh, you know, we didn't necessarily address exactly the sweet spot question, but I do think it's interesting to note that Major League Baseball is now more competitive than it ever has been. And, you know, I, guess I can't get away too much of the article considering it hasn't been published yet, but the general trend is that, you know, prior year winning percentage is not nearly as predictive. Of future winning percentages, it used to be, uh, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s when the Yankees and Dodgers and Cardinals and a few teams were, uh, always winning and there were a few teams that were always losing. Major League Baseball is much more balanced now than it was back then. And I think what we're seeing is that Major League Baseball is growing, uh, at a, a rate that is, um, surprisingly positive <laughs> considering how much, uh, people talk about how the NFL has surpassed Major League Baseball as, as, America's sport now. And, um, even the NBA is having a resurgence with LeBron James and, uh, they're coming back from some financial struggles uh you know 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I think we're seeing you know Major League Baseball is growing and doing really well financially. In part because uh, I think we're seeing more teams be competitive, and I think what we're what we've seen over the last 10 years is that it's not just the Yankees winning every year anymore.
0: So okay, so so back to the Trout situation, which which opened up this uh, this discussion. <clears throat> Are, do we assume a that Mike Trout is unhappy? Uh, or maybe this is more posturing on, on the part of his agent. And and B, I mean, <laughs> what leverage, if any, does Trout or players like Trout have?
1: Yeah, I don't think we can assume that Trout's unhappy just because his agent decided to make some noise. Uh, you know, it, did, did anyone think Jason Hayward was unhappy last year, or was it Clayton Kershaw was unhappy before he signed his arbitration deal? I mean, there wasn't any, any really talk about any of those players being unhappy with their franchise when the exact same thing happened to them. Uh, I don't think we should assume that just because Trout's agent made some comments that it reflects on Trout's, um, you know, personality or um, disposition towards the Angels. Uh I think, you know, overall, Mike Trout understands the system. He got his, you know, $2 million signing bonus as a first-round pick. He's going to make half a million dollars this year. He's not poor. I mean, the man can buy a car. He can, you know, get a nice house. Um, and I think he understands that if he wants $100 million right now uh, in terms of guaranteed money, he could go to the Angels and offer to play for them for the next 10 years. They'd almost certainly give him that contract today. So uh, I think, you know, it's a choice that the player has to make. Is if he wants long-term security, he can sell off some free agent years. Uh, I think, you know, Trout's probably aware of the fact that as long as he has another good season, he's due for a really large uh, contract in the near future. And um, I think he, he probably is smart enough to realize that this is the system that he was, you know, collectively bargained, and there's not much he can
0: do about it. What's the, what's the earliest the player has? Uh, I mean, and this has obviously become a growing trend. Uh, I mean, Evan Longoria's contract is a great example. This player selling out his uh, <clears throat> years later arbitration years and free agent years uh, for security, or more than security, in the uh, in the near future, but a chance to to um, sort of trade in, uh, um, I guess, performance to date and the promise of performance in the future for a large amount of money. Um, I'm curious, what's the what's the earliest that a player has ever sold out his uh, his arbitration years?
1: I think Matt Moore is probably the record. I mean, he had, what, 10 major league innings when he, uh, you know, at the oh, yeah, end of right. the 2011 yeah. season. He, he pitched in two games, and then they pitched in the playoffs a little bit, too, but, uh, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't pitched much in the regular season, and he signed a, a long-term deal to raise Rays. Longoria signed his deal, like, nine days after getting promoted. I think part of that was a handshake agreement that he wouldn't get promoted until he agreed to the deal, and they just didn't announce it for about a week and a half. But uh, I think in general, um, we have seen some players uh, who basically signed contracts straight out of the minors with no established major league playing time, but they've had to take really large discounts in order to get those deals.
0: And then given precedent, uh, or, or or again, maybe with Trout, there, there isn't anything like precedent. Uh, I mean, what do we expect uh, what do we expect, like his, you said, $100 million, 10 years? I mean, I don't know if that's just a, a number you're throwing up, but what do we think is kind of the window now of what uh, Trout's value would be to the Angels? Uh, and what, um, and, and I guess ha- um, how Trout would value um, buying out those Arbyers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think 100 is million is low. I don't think Trout would accept that. I'm think going to do that as a number. I think the Angels could you know, say yes to it without even doing any calculations. If Trout was willing to sell off five free agent years, uh, and all three of his beers for a total of $100 million, it's, it's a no-brainer for Eagles. I think uh, realistically you're looking at probably 150 to $200 million if he's going to find for 10 years, simply because those three years, with what Trout's already done, yes, it's only one season, but given that it's an age-20 season, he was already a top prospect. Uh, any reasonable projection system, even accounting for injury risk and attrition, uh, it's gonna project Trout as a 20, 25 million dollar player for those years, especially with salary escalation. Maybe you're even talking 30 million a year. Uh, those free agent years are worth a lot of money. If you're getting five free agent years, saying um, you're gonna to have to uh, pay a significant premium to get those years even this far in advance. Um and you know, that's not even including the arb uh, situation where if, you know, he gets to arbitration and he's got a, you know, a couple of top five MVP finishes under his belt. He's going to make a lot of money in his three arbitration years as well. So, I think you're probably looking at something between 150 to 250 million if the Angels actually wanted to get this done.
0: This this trend, uh, which is again, this is n- this is not breaking news, right? But this trend of uh, buying uh, players out of their arb years and early free agent years, it would seem to suggest that uh, that that uh, I guess coming into or acquiring high end talent to begin with, uh, is of even uh, greater importance if you're going to be in a position where you're going to be buying out free agent years um, um, in the future.
1: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that we're seeing with this trend of these early career extensions, you know, we've generally talked about players as prospects of having six years of service time, like a team has six years of control over, you know, Will Myers or whoever it is. Uh, I think in reality, you know, that number is too low. <laughs> you know, just from the gaming, the service time system, you can easily get seven years uh, simply through the act of holding a player down in the minors for a couple of weeks and getting a almost full season that doesn't count as a, a full year towards free agency. Um, so pretty much any team who's willing to uh, play that game is going to get almost seven full seasons from any kind of prospect. And then once you factor in that, you know, you can likely buy out a a, a team-friendly contract somewhere early in their career, uh, I think the average that we're seeing uh, for star players it was, remaining with their individual teams is probably closer to nine or ten years. So um, I don't think there's any question that developing your own homegrown star um, and having that kind of franchise player come up through your system is uh, uh, significantly more beneficial than just looking at, you know, his production in the first six seasons.
0: And yet, uh, at the same time, it seems as though it's harder to um, – I guess it's harder to, as a team – it's harder to put yourself in a position where you can acquire that sort of talent um, in alternate means, right? Because obviously, um, the draft, um, the way it's structured now, um, it's harder to give certain players um, incredible, or, you know, um, higher bonuses. Uh, it's harder to pay guys over slot, uh, and then I think that also international uh, prospecting has um, um, received more constraints as well.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, the, the rules changes have definitely made it more difficult to stockpile prospects than it used to be. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, all of these shifts just kind of have trade-offs, right, where if it's m- more difficult to get prospects, uh, then the value of the prospect should theoretically go up. Um, and, you know, then, you know, their trade value is going to go up as well. So, you know, you can say, okay, well, prospects are more difficult to obtain, uh, so therefore it's harder to trade for them. Or you could just pay a little bit more and still be able to find a, a price that works for both sides. I mean, we did see, you know, Will Myers was traded this offseason, uh, Travis Dero was traded this offseason, Jesus Montero was traded last offseason. It's not that teams are not trading their young players anymore. Uh, the price to obtain them has just gone up.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, that's all good stuff. And um, is there anything else we should know about Jeff's article that's worthy of consideration?
1: Uh, it's good. You should read it. i, I mean, you know, there's no gifts or GIFs, I guess, in, in Sullivan parlance. Yeah. Uh, so people with slow browsers and uh, you know old computers should be able to enjoy a Jeff Sullivan article for the first time in a long time.
0: Yeah, first time in a long time. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, moving on, of course, uh, this weekend saw the beginning of WBC action, World Baseball Classic. Uh, <laughs> for anyone who keeps relatively normal bedtime hours, um, it did not reveal much because I think that probably the most reasonable game was – uh, the, let's see, the Friday night there was – a uh, maybe every night there's been an 11.30 p.m. Eastern game, which is maybe the yeah. closest thing to reasonable. But the, the other ones have been in the uh, the dark of night. Um, I, I, I guess it's been interesting so far. I, I mean I, I bring it up now because you had a proposal for it, and I don't know um, to what degree we need to go into it. But you essentially said uh, fewer games, put them all in a place, and uh, I guess kind of condense the action.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, last night China and Cuba played in Fukuoka, Japan, and Ben Madler is, you know, in Japan of Baseball America fame and and of your teaching uh, class fame. Um, And I think he tweeted that he counted something like 88 people in the stands. The official announced attendance was 3,000. He is uh, certain it was almost under 100. I don't think that having a game that counts with attendance under 100 does anyone any good? <laughs> I mean, it just it makes all the other games less important. Obviously, no one in Japan cared about the China-Cuba game, even though Cuba has some pretty interesting talent, and there are baseball evaluators there who care. Uh, the fan base at large um, didn't care at all about that game, and I don't think that uh, having China and Cuba play in a game, that doesn't really mean anything in a round-robin, uh, you know, first round where it's almost certain that China is not going to advance and Cuba is. Uh, that, having that game was essentially a glorified practice, and I, I don't really see the point of um, stretching out the WBC over two weeks and watering down the importance of each individual game by having games like that.
0: Yeah, it it should be noted a couple things, just to put that in context. Uh, that, that WBC game where you said that uh, at most there were 3,000, but probably more uh, like 100. Uh, this is in uh, Fukuoka, is that right, how you say it? Fukuoka, I believe. Is Fukuoka, you, you know, okay, right. Yeah. Um, this is uh, a quick um, search of the internet reveals this is a city, uh, with a, at least a, in the greater area has a population of close to one and a half million people. Um, in, in a country, it should be said that uh, cares a lot about baseball. Correct. Uh, and they and they drew uh, they drew this, this few people. So,
1: and I, I would say of those hundred, probably half of them were major league scouts. Uh, like a lot of major league scouts sent their uh, personnel to Japan to watch Team Cuba because you don't get to see that many. Cuban uh, players in action. Uh, so, uh, you know, of the hundred people that were there, probably uh, a couple of dozen bought
0: tickets. Right. Now, I guess I, I would make – or at least I would have the thought that we should not necessarily base the virtues of a baseball game. And, of course, you know that, that I believe this, the virtues of a baseball game on the attendance. Um, can you talk about um, maybe what – the importance of attendance to sort of like – a. I guess what percentage that plays in your assessment of whether it's worth having, and then what the other virtues might be or the other drawbacks of of a a game that's sparsely attended or just seems to have little interest in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think attendance itself is all that important, but I think we can use attendance as a proxy for overall fan interest. And, you know, I think you can probably correlate pretty highly uh, people in the stands with people watching in general. So if there's 55,000 people in the stands, odds are pretty good. The TV ratings are going to be high. There's going to be a lot of interest in... In that ball game, uh, beyond the 55,000 who are there, if there's a hundred people there, it is, you know, attendance and interest and uh, television rating are all going to be quite low. I don't think you're going to see too many sporting events where there's, um, you know, no one at the park, but everyone else in the world is really enthralled with the matchup. And I, I do think that, you know, when you look at kind of the the importance of each individual game, and you say if there's if no one cares or very few people care about this matchup. Why are we having it? Like, what is the what is the point of this uh, this game? I mean, if you're basically just having a glorified exhibition game, uh, you know, Team Cuba could have taken batting practice, and you know, the scouts would have just been just as impressed. Uh, you know, what what is the uh, value of having a game like that that draws no interest, has no real bearing on the outcome of the WBC? Um, you know, rather than just having a default of let's play this game just because it's on the schedule. I think it's helpful to ask and say, why are we playing this game? And I, I don't know what the answer is to why did China and Cuba play last
0: night. Right. So, uh, I mean, I guess it's because this is it's part of the format that's been selected, right, for, for the World Baseball Classic. I, I mean, I guess, um, and this goes along with your proposal that you um, published on the site last week, basically fewer games. I mean, now, do you think that there's any context in which more people would attend a China-Cuba baseball game? I, I think if
1: you had a single elimination game that was all the entire thing was held in one venue, which I think this is probably an important part of the proposal, it is allowing people to travel to one site and watch all of the WVC in its entirety over a week. Uh I think you know what we see is people are willing to buy tickets in advance for the Final Four when they have no idea who's going to be playing. Uh Even you know Sweet Sixteen, uh, you know NCAA tournament games do decently in attendance. They're not always necessarily sellouts, but they draw okay when people have absolutely no clue which teams are going to be playing in advance, and oftentimes they're not anywhere from that geographic region. If you could just pitch the WBC as a baseball event uh, to take place in one city, I think it would be a pretty popular thing where people who would otherwise have traveled to spring training to get their baseball fix might travel to San Francisco or Los Angeles or some warm-weather city in, in March and say, you know what, I'm going to go buy a strip of tickets, uh, I'm going to you know attend maybe 10 of the 15 games, uh, they're going to be held over a seven-day period, and because I'm buying them all in advance, uh, and every game a single elimination, you know, maybe I want to see a chance and beat Cuba in advance and pull a miracle upset. Uh, that game all of a sudden has importance. Uh, I think you're going to see the teams play it differently. Uh, I do think that you would draw a crowd that wouldn't otherwise even have the ability to try and attend the game and watch the games. Uh, and you'd appeal to a uh, you know a segment of the fan base that is otherwise not interested in the first couple of rounds of the WVC,
0: right? So, and then would you? I mean, to to continue the proposal or expand upon it is the idea that uh, I guess uh, countries would bid on it uh, much of the way that they might the World Cup or something like this. I mean, I
1: think there's probably a limitation on where you could put the WVC at this point, just because there aren't that many baseball hotbeds with multiple stadiums, and you probably probably need two stadiums in order to have 15 games in one city in a week um so i think America and Japan could do it easily uh maybe you could do it in Puerto Rico or Mexico but you know maybe not Uh, i think from a logistical standpoint you know it would have to start off in the US and Japan but if you grew the game globally which might happen if you know if the Netherlands were able to pull a, a shocking upset and make it to the semifinals, i think that could do some interesting things for that sport in that country Um, You know, maybe at some point you could have it in Australia, you could have it in the Netherlands. I think down the line, uh, having a single elimination tournament that allowed for, uh, you know, an upstart team to make a deep run, which is, you know, harder now in in a round robin double elimination kind of uh, format. Probably does more to ensure that Venezuela and the
0: Dominican Republic, the United States, and Japan,
1: and Korea—the teams that we know are good at baseball—are going to play for the championship.
0: Well, actually, that goes back to to our idea of competitive balance, right? And if there's a sweet spot, obviously for a one-off tournament like this, like um, it, uh, the rules are different, or in the in our idea of quote-unquote competitive balance is different. You think that there would be some advantage to allowing? I mean, obviously, if you, if it's single elimination, that's going that's going to Tend It's going to uh, skew uh, closer to or more towards uh, chance as opposed to representing skill, uh, which would probably favor the, um, the less quality teams. Do you think there's some advantage to uh, one or two of a, maybe a wildcard type team uh, progressing deeper into the tournament?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure what the world baseball classic does for us if it just tells us that the United States and, and Venezuela and Dominican Republic are baseball powerhouses. We, we already know that. That's obvious. Like anyone who pays attention to the demographics of Major League Baseball knows which countries have more talent in baseball than the rest. The goal of the WBC is to grow the game. And I think you grow the game internationally by giving the uh smaller countries or the teams the countries that aren't, you know, baseball hotbeds, an actual chance to compete on the big stage in games that matter. And I think, you know, giving them a single elimination chance says, bring your best guys for one game. Maybe you have one good starting pitcher in your entire country. Throw him for seven innings. Uh, and, you know, if you win that game, you can advance. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of format uh, that encourages chance, to, that, you know, kind of narrows the big gap that exists in talent base between countries will make for more exciting baseball. Um, and, you know, will, will probably give us a more entertaining product. I mean, I think what we saw in the last WBC is, you know, the U.S. and Puerto Rico, uh, played in front of 30,000 people uh, in a game that had you know decent, uh, decent attendance, decent um, interest, and then three days later they played again and 10,000 people came because they just saw that game three days before. I think there's a uniqueness to having two countries face off, and when you have them play twice in four days, that uniqueness kind of uh, goes away and makes the, both games kind of less
0: interesting. Okay. Hey, listen, Dave Cameron, um, it looks almost as though you've uh, fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio.
1: I have analyzed a worldwide amount of baseball this week.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, global a global amount. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Uh, that'll have right. to be the uh, – yeah, that'll have to be the – I noticed last week um, I um, I took very little, uh, literally um, what you said with regard to how much baseball you had analyzed. I think you had said two standard deviations above the mean. Right. And I made that – I don't know if you noticed, Cameron. I think you did because uh, it was edited afterwards. I made that the title of the podcast. I, I did
1: notice, yes. When you put something in the subject, I do see what you write. Uh, if you put something in the article, I don't read it. You
0: don't, you don't read wrote. it, yeah. yeah. You don't yeah. read it. Um, okay. Well, that's great uh, We'll end on that insult. Uh, hey, <laughs> uh, Dave, uh, thank you for joining us at Fangrass Audio. Yeah. yeah, no
1: problem. And I guess we should probably note next week I will be uh, – podcasting from arizona so uh, i'll look forward to sweating and uh trying to find some shade while we talk
0: yes and uh i, I suppose you can remind any of our listeners who are uh, n- north of the mason dixon line or something like that uh how uh how nice it is there
1: yeah i mean you know i think uh they're calling for snow on am in this is where i live and then thursday i'll be flying to somewhere where it's like 90 degrees that'll be a next, uh, drastic change to my body temperature
0: yeah now wait uh uh, yeah, I think that you're actually going to be finding your way, or am I, am I mistaken, to to a, a classic game?
1: i uh, actually going to a bunch of them. We uh, we have uh, I, uh, received credentials for the World Baseball Classic Pool B games that are held in uh, Chase Stadium in Phoenix, uh, and Appleman actually uh, purchased a couple of tickets. Uh, so the FanGraphs crew will be in attendance at some WBC games this weekend, or yeah, this coming weekend, I guess.
0: Right. Okay, cool. Well, there you go. Um, That's very good, all of it. Uh, All right, that is uh, Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley, uh, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.